0: All right, Book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, I know we had to take a break last week for the Just War study, which sparked, uh, well, won't tell, talk about my email inbox about that, okay, we'll just ignore that like it never happened, okay, but Romans chapter 3, so I got to try to remind you where we were. If you remember in Romans, we we spent a considerable amount of time in Romans And Romans chapter 3, from verse 1 to basically verse 19, looking at four questions. Everybody remember those four questions? Verses 1 through 2, there was a question. What advantage is there being a Jew? Right? And we talked about all the different advantages they had. Everybody remember that? Then in Romans chapter 3, verses 3 through 4, there was a second question. Has Israel's unbelief canceled God's faithfulness? Right? And what's the answer? God forbid. Third question If our unrighteousness shows God's righteousness, isn't it unfair to punish us? Right? And what was the answer? How can God judge the whole world if it would be unjust? Right? He's the judge of the world, right? And it makes a reference back to Genesis. All right. Then. That brings us to question number four. Question number four is found in verses 9 through 18. And what was question number four? Is the Jew better than the Gentile? Right? And what's the answer? No. All right? Everybody see that in Romans chapter 3, verse 9? What then? Are we better than they? The we is referring to the Jew. The they is referring to the Gentile. And no wise, for we before prove both Jew and Gentile that they are all under sin. All right? He makes a reference that they've already made this statement before. In fact, we some would we argue Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 makes an argument that the Gentiles are sinners and that the Jews are sinners. Okay? So he's made the argument before. Now he makes it again, we're all under sin. And then what does he do starting in verse 10? 10 all the way down to 20, right? Or actually, from 10 to 19, he's going to make an argument once again, or he's going to set out once again to prove that we are all sinners. But he's not just going to argue that we're all sinners, he's going to pr- try to argue from verse 10 to 19 how bad the situation really is. And we spent all, uh, an entire hour on this already. Um, and one sermon teaching this. So I'm, I'm going to kind of go through this uh, kind of quick um, because we've already covered most of this before and we can't get to the next section. We can't get to the next section though until, until we get this section down. Now in this church, we have a specific theological position when it comes to this subject. We reject Pelagianism. Rege- we re- reject completely semi-Pelagianism. All right? We don't just reject it in theory, we reject it completely, okay? And so we do not believe in Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism. We believe in two words, total depravity of man, right? We believe that human beings are totally depraved, and we would use as one of our key proof texts, Romans 3, 10 and following. So everyone in this church should have this down. Like, you should know this because you live in a world, uh, you, well, you live here in West Texas. Almost every church in this city, uh, every church around us, is semi-Pelagian, if not full-blown Pelagian. Right? Now, they may claim they're not. Listen to their preaching and teaching and listen to how they stop, talk about men and, and and talk about the human human condition, and you're going to hear semi-Pelagianism. Let's state it this way. Even if they may claim to believe in total depravity, they usually actually contradict it in their teaching in other areas. And we try to be consistent on this, and so this is a key passage. Verse 10, what does verse 10 establish? No, it establishes something else. As it is written... Paul is going to make his argument about the condition of men, borrowing from the Old Testament. Why is this critical? That the doctrine of total depravity is the consistent teaching of the entire Bible. It's not just something made up by Augustine or Calvin. It's the consistent teaching of the Bible. All right, everybody, remember that. Okay. Now, what's the what does he start off with here? As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Everybody see this? Right? Okay. Now, there, okay, well, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get down to verse 13 in a minute. Okay. So, there is none righteous, no, not one. All right. That immediately tells us what? What's, what's the main claim of verse 10? Okay. Well, let, let's, let's make sure we say what the text says. The text is simply claiming there's no one righteous. Now, why is that a problem? God demands righteousness. Okay, all right. There's not one. Verse 11, there is none that understandeth. Stop there. All right. There is none righteous. That speaks of the moral condition, right? There is no one righteous. All right, everybody got that? Okay, okay. Then verse 11 there is none that understandeth. What is that speaking of? The mind. The mind is corrupted. The mind is impacted. Somehow in our sinfulness, somehow in our depravity, even the mind is impacted. It 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 it, it stops people from understanding. Now this is critical. Because this is what, this is so weird to me, and I don't want to turn this into an entire doctrine, a, a, a discussion about Reformed theology versus non Reformed theology, but let's make sure we remember this. There are two views, and I, and I just want to state this again before we really dig into this. I want to make this very clear. You've got the Pelagian, semi Pelagian view, right? Basically stating man is not totally depraved. We're not completely uh, corrupted because of Adam's sin. and We can go on and on and on, right? But when you get down to it, there are two real basic views in when it comes to theology, right? View number one, right? We'll call this the, the evangelical common view that most Christians you know believe in. There's Joel sitting there, right? And I walk over to Joel and I start trying to speak to him about the gospel and present the gospel to him. View number one believes Joel literally has the, comp- the ability to choose to believe. That his will is not impacted by his depravity. Correct? View number two says Joel can't. He's incapable. He's completely incapable. Not only does he not have the righteousness to be saved, this side would believe that, but he doesn't even have the mental ability to understand. Okay? So this side believes who has to step in? God. And that, therefore, if Joel does become saved, it's the work of whom? God. Therefore, I don't need, you know, I can't do anything for Joel. Now, in, in some way, from, the, from, the, from our side, it's a freeing thing. I don't have to sit there and go, man, I wish I could have done this, I wish I could have done this. I can't do anything. I, I can manipulate Joel, Right? I could I could yell at him for not paying attention, right? I, I could do that kind of stuff, right? But ultimately, what difference does it make? I could I could I could produce what? Outward conformity, but I can't change anything. Now the, the key now this is a, a, a massive a massively different approach to theology. Everybody understand this? Most of your Christian friends are like, no, Joel has the will to believe. I think Romans 3, 10 and following is going to make it very hard to prove that case. Agreed? Because what do we start with? No one righteous and no one, no one understands. That seems to go with the mental part. What else? There is none that seeketh after God. There, he, no one is seeking after God. Now, sometimes you'll hear Christians say, Well, I think they're seeking after God. No, they're not. No one is seeking after God. It just absolutely confuses me. I mean, is that hard to understand? I don't think it's hard, but there's an entire movement within Christianity called the Seeker Sensitive Movement. Meaning, we've got to structure the church service to be sensitive to seekers. There's no seekers. They may be seeking, they may, I'll take that back, they may be seekers, but they're not seeking God. So what are they seeking? Oh, let's use the buzzword. This is even showing up in Catholic articles lately, okay? okay. Community, community, oh, if I hear that word one more time, I'm going to run in front of an oncoming train, Okay. I'm just so sick of hearing that. I need community. 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 Everybody needs community. Okay, right. Well, the church is supposed to give you something other than community, right? It's supposed to give you the scriptures, right? The Word of God. Okay, so there are people seeking community. Well, that's, that's not the same thing, correct? So what the church does is, oh, look at all these people. They're so disconnected because of modern-day technology, so they need a place that they can have interpersonal relationships and see people face-to-face and feel human connection. That all sounds so good, doesn't it? Literally, I feel like I'm selling it, right? Okay, And and so they create situations for that. And is it successful? Wildly successful, absolutely. People love that stuff. They eat that stuff up. But does that fix it? That's not what they need. Right? But what are they not seeking? If you build your church on giving people this, you're building your church on lost people. All right? Does that make sense? No one's seeking after God. That is the literal basis of our theology. No one seeks God. Who? So, how do they get saved? Who does the seeking? God does the seeking. God has to save the individual. They don't. They can't understand. They don't seek. Who steps in? God steps in. This is. Very, I know it's a, like it's. If I was to say this in some churches, literally, I'd be I'd be fired, because their theology is like, no, Joel possesses the ability to choose God. No, he doesn't. God has to step in. Or. Or, if you say, no, 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 I believe he can, well, then you're a semi-Pelagian or a Pelagian. Which has was always viewed upon in church history as being what? A heresy. Now, it, you say, well, I don't like that teaching. I don't like it either. I don't like it. I would like to believe everyone could choose. But I can't believe that because the Bible says, no one understands and no one seeks. They have all gone out of their way. They're together become unprofitable. And there is none that doeth good. No, not one. It's literally saying that everyone is in a horrible situation. And when we say don't do, no one does good, what do we mean by that? Doesn't do good according to whose standard? God's standard, right? From a human perspective, they may do good, but not from God's perspective. That's pretty bad, is it not? So what, what do we have impacted here? We've got righteousness. We've got the mind. What else do we have? The will. No one's seeking after God. What else do we have? Yeah, the, their actions. Their actions. This is going after all of us. And then what do we move to in verse 13? All right, Their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their Lips. It's going after now their mouth, their speech. Even our speech is corrupted. And why is the speech corrupted? What does does our speech reveal? What's in our hearts? What's in our hearts? It reveals what is there. All right, let's continue. He goes from the, the speech to what? Well, verse 14, same thing, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Right? So we go from the mouth next to. the feet are swift to shed blood. Now we have the feet, right? Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the ways of peace have they not known? There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's he's utilizing he's utilizing parts of the body that we understand: mouth, feet, and eyes, right? He's using that, but what is the ultimate goal he wants you to understand about the human condition? Completely, totally depraved. All right? Ver, uh, all right, now we'll, uh, we'll stop right there before we read verse 19. Now, he's making a reference to a number of scriptures here. I've got them written down. I'm just going to go through some of them and we can look at how, how this works out. Go to Psalm chapter 5, verse 9. There's a lot of references in here. Psalm chapter 5, verse 9. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulchre and they flatter with their tongue. They keep borrowing from that in Romans. Everybody see that? Now here in, in the Psalm, David is referring to a specific group of people. Paul takes it and applies it to whom? Everybody. Everybody. Now, that makes sense, because what David is acknowledging in Psalm 5 is that, hey, individuals, this is the natural state of, indiv- of certain individuals. But uh, Paul wants us to understand it's the natural state of everyone, all right? It's Psalm chapter 5, verse 9. Go to, um, hang on, I also believe in verse thir- uh well, no, okay, Psalm 5, verse 19. Look at Psalm 140. Psalm 140, everybody there? Look at verse 3. Psalm chapter 40, verse 3. They have sharpened their tongues like a serpent, adder's uh, poison is under their lips. Everybody see that? Right? Sounds similar to what we read in Romans, yes? All right? They've sharpened their tongues, got that? Look at uh, Psalm 10. Go to Psalm chapter 10. Verse 7, Psalm 10, verse 7. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud. Under his tongue is mischief and vanity. Very similar to Romans, is it not? I think uh, that's close to Romans 3.14, I believe. Okay, uh, look at uh, Isaiah, let's go to Isaiah 59. Isaiah fifty nine. everybody there. Isaiah fifty nine starting in verse seven. Isaiah fifty nine verse seven, their feet run to evil. And they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Uh, wasting and destruction are in their path. The way of peace they know not, and there is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whoever, uh, whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. Does that not sound like Romans? Almost identical, is it not? Yeah, Paul is p- pull- pulling from all over uh, the Bible. Go to Psalm chapter 36. Psalm chapter 36, verse 1. The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. All right, everybody see that? Does that not really capture. Uh, basically, what I want you to see is Paul, this is what he does. He pulls from the Old Testament all of those Old Testament passages, because, and this is very, and make sure you understand this. Uh, Because a lot of people who who question the doctrine of total depravity, they will point this out. Well, those passages Paul is pulling from, he's pulling from passages that are referring to a specific group of people. This is not describing everyone. This is only describing certain kinds of people. That is true in the way the Old Testament is using them. Paul makes it very clear that he's applying it to whom? Everyone. Is there any question about what Paul is doing here? Right? How would you prove your argument by saying he's talking to everyone? Look at Romans 3.10 again. First 9, he's talking about that the Jews are not better than the Gentiles. So that's covering Jew and Gentile. Agreed? Okay. Then he says in 10, as it is written, there is... None righteous, no, not one. He's applying it to everyone. And then look what he does in verse 19. Now we know that what things whoever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Everyone is guilty. No one is righteous. We are all impacted by sin. So this is the way we can summarize this section. I wanted to break it down a lot more. I've got all kinds of notes to break this down more. But I think I'm going to build... I, I don't want to spend too much time here because we have spent so much time on this doctrine uh, in times past that I don't think I need to go through it again and, because the next section is what we really need to get to. But let me state it this way. All right? Every human being is corrupted by sin. This corruption impacts, are you ready? The mind, the mouth, the heart, the actions, and the will. This corruption impacts what? The mind, the mouth, or you could say speech, The heart, desires, motives, actions, there's our feet, and the will. Now, 99% of Christians will agree with everything I said except for one part, the will. They will magically believe the will is protected from it. Now, can you just see how ludicrous that is? How did the will escape corruption? (laughs) You're totally corrupt, except your will. And remember the way I was taught as an independent fundamental Baptist. You are totally depraved, but your will is insulated from that depravity. Well, now think about it. If my will is insulated from my depravity, then that means a lost person could simply will to do right. And that's not the case. All right? Because uh, everyone, nobody, uh, a lot, everyone, c- put it this way, no one has yet found a way to will themselves to be sinless. Now remember, what did Pelagius believe? That there could be sinless people. Remember that? Pelagius believed because he believed the will was free. He's consistent. Independent, a lot of the independent fundamental Baptists who believe in, they'll call it the freedom of the will, freedom of the will. Well, it's the freedom of the will, then that means people literally have the freedom to choose to be perfect. So if you believe in freedom of the will, then this is, it's an easy test. Prove it. Be perfect. I don't believe you can. Because I believe your will is corrupted. And it's an easy argument to win. Anyone who ever argues with me about free will, I, I remember getting into major arguments at work about the do- doctrine of free will, and I'd be like, hey, it's per- it's, you're right. You have the freedom of the will. I'm wrong. And all you have to do to prove me that I'm wrong is be perfect. They're like, well, I can't be perfect. You say your will is free. You can be. All you got to do is will it. Choose it. Nobody can. Because the will is not free. So then what I hear is, okay, well, the will is not completely free, but it's free to choose God. All right, so, so the will is corrupted, except. This one little part's not corrupt. It doesn't work that way. The will is corrupted. Why? Because every other part of us is corrupted. All right? No one seeks God. No one desires God. No one loves God. No one fears God. No one wants God. No one wants any of that thing because we are depra- depraved. And how does this section end in verse 20? Verse 20. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. Verse 19. I'm sorry. Okay. Verse 19. Everyone's guilty. Everyone's guilty. Everyone is guilty. Everybody got that? So, how does this section end? What is, what is the ultimate conclusion of verse 10 to 19? Is that we are corrupted by sin and it impacts what? Mind, speech, heart, action, will. Boom. And as a result of that corruption, we are all what according to 19? Guilty before God. Alright, everybody see that? We're all guilty before God. Now, this brings us to verse 20. And well, how does verse 20 begin? Therefore, therefore, based off what? Our guilt... Therefore, what's not going to happen? Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Why does he say that no one can be justified by the deeds of the law? Do I? Because... Okay, we're all guilty. Because the law, listen, would we agree? The law is not only demanding a righteousness in action, but it's demanding a righteousness in the heart and a righteousness in motive. And is not what God condemned them for many times? Um, hey, you 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 do this and you do that, but your heart is far from me. Correct? All right. We're corrupt inwardly, we're corrupted outwardly, so guess what? Even if we were to pull off the outward action, we would still have the inward corruption, but we can't even pull off the outward action, because the inward corruption ultimately produces a flawed outward reaction. So in other words, there's no way we can pull this off. If we pull it off outwardly, which we, even, we can't even do that, inwardly we would still be wrong. If we pulled it off inwardly, we think we can, we still wouldn't be pulling it off outwardly, because that corruption would ultimately show outwardly. So bottom line is no one can be justified by the deeds of the law. Agreed? Now, make sure we understand this. In church history, there's a lot of debate on how to interpret this. Are we not justified by the deeds of the Old Testament law but we can become justified by following the law of Christ? Catholics would make that argument, right? Hey, we can't be justified by following all those Old Testament laws, but there are some laws we have to follow to be justified. I will argue he does. Yeah, I would think he does. So so I would argue that if, put it this way, this is what I would say. If this corruption is, is as bad as it says it is, then it's going to be impossible for me to ever be justified by what I do. Now this is where the Catholic system comes into play, and how do you get rid of this corruption? What does infant baptism do? Wash away original sin, right? And then what happens? You're infused with righteousness. And now you cooperate with the righteousness to ultimately be righteous enough. Okay, that that they're trying a way to work around this. We would argue clearly baptism doesn't fix it because I've known a lot of a lot of Catholics who are baptized at babies are absolute pagans. Well, then like, well they didn't cooperate with it. Okay, well. Nobody cor- cooperates with it enough, So that, that's a very, it, it becomes very convoluted in how to pull the, all of that off. We would argue this, the reason we say no one can be justified by work is because our corruption is so great. And because our corruption is so great, listen, to me, that argument that no one can be justified by the deeds of the law, the reason no one can is because no one is able. This destroys the doctrine of free will. Because free will, you would be able to freely obey the law. All Jesus would need to do is say, hey, you've got a free will, Bobby. Follow the law. I don't need to do anything for you. But Christianity says, Bobby, can't. So Jesus did. That would argue that we don't have a will to be able to do so. And if we don't have the will to obey, then we don't have the will to choose. Therefore, God has to do The saving, all right? That's a very basic Christian teaching, all right? I know it doesn't sound like a basic Christian teaching, but it's been the Christian teaching for a very long time. All right, so everybody got that? All right, everybody got that? So, verse 19, everyone is guilty. Because everyone is guilty, no one will be justified by what? The law. Now, this gives us verse 21. Oh, boy. This is where everything gets really crazy, all right? All right, here's what's going to happen. In Romans chapter 3, so we've kind of completed that section. We had four questions, and then the, the answer to question number four is this lengthy discussion about everyone is guilty. Because he said Jew and Gentile are both what? Guilty, and then he proves it correct so uh, eight uh, so all, all all the way down to verse 18 and 19 is proving his he's basically offering a proof to his answer to the fourth question everybody see that but in starting in verse 20 a transition occurs and now i'm going to give you kind of an outline to a large section of romans you ready romans 3 20 to 31 We're going to call this justification explained. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 25, we're going to look at justification illustrated. Justification explained and justification illustrated. All right, everybody got that? 4 verse 1 to verse 25. Two things they want us to learn here. What are the two things? They want to explain to us what? Justification. And what else? Then he wants to do what? Illustrate it illustrate, he's going to explain it, he's going to illustrate it. Basically, uh, this uh, he's going to handle this like a, a, a lot of pastors handle a sermon, right? At a sermon, you first try to give the doctrinal position, you try to give the teaching, and then what do I try to do to help you get the teaching down in some way? I offer some kind of illustration, Right? I mean, there are literal books for pastors, like, you know, uh, 1001 illustrations, right? And then pastors preaching a sermon, then they go to the book of illustration and find an illustration. Typically, pastors pull from personal experience or stories or something like that, and they pull from this. The, the, and sometimes people miss the. People get all confused because if they use an illustration, like, let's say they use an illustration about a movie or an illustration about a, a music, they'll say, oh, I can't believe they listened to that song. You're missing the point. They're sometimes using that simply to illustrate the doctrinal point that was made. Does that make sense? He's going to do the same thing. He's going to get into a lengthy discussion explaining justification, and then he's going to give us an illustration to illustrate it. Now, interesting enough, he's going, he's going to do this in a, kind of a, a, a couple of ways. So let's, let's work through this. How can we do this? Let's look at verse nineteen and twenty. All right, if we've already looked at nineteen and twenty, but I want to to do this. In your mind, I'm going to give you the ability to figure this out. In Romans three nineteen through twenty, what is you? And I'm gonna, and I, I like to bring you along in the process. And verses nineteen and twenty, in your mind, what is Paul trying to do in verse nineteen and twenty? What is Paul trying to accomplish in nineteen and twenty? Because I think nineteen and twenty are critical. And and well, I won't. I'm going to give away the answer. What do you think Paul is trying to do in verses nineteen and twenty? I'm trying to figure out how to ask the question without giving you the answer. Okay. Okay. I think there's two things he's trying to accomplish here. One, he wants you to see your need, right? Or we could put it, he wants you to see your guilt. He wants to see how helpless and hopeless you are. That's the first thing he wants to establish, correct? And then he wants to limit, limit the solution, he wants to show you how guilty you are, how helpless you are. And, and what, what's his conclusion in 19 and 20? How hopeless are you? Whole world's guilty before God. Whole world's guilty before God. Whole world's guilty before God. Right? No, no, I mean, you're, you're, you're in, out of luck, are you not? Look, again, verse 19. Now we know that th- th- things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. In other words, there's nothing you can say. Every mouth is stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God. Every person is so guilty, they cannot say anything. They can't offer an excuse. They can't offer an explanation. They can't offer a justification. Everyone is guilty. So the only response is, is silence. And then we'll look at what he does in verse... Um, 20, therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now he limits your ability to to find a solution. And what what does he take away from you? You can't do anything. He wants you to see your guilt and the helplessness of your situation. He wants to limit what you think the solution is because you could be like, okay, okay. It could go something like this. I have messed up. I know I have messed up. But I'm going to do better now. He's like, no, that's not an option. So what am I going to do, right? What am I going to... If I'm so guilty and I can't do anything myself, where's the solution? So verse 19 and 20 is a bridge. 19 and 20 is a bridge from the guilt to now the justification that's going to be explained. Does that make sense? 19 and 20 is kind of a bridge, right? If 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 you were to make this a chart, right, it would be like this, right? Okay, I am guilty in my mind, I'm corrupt in my mind, I'm corrupt in my speech, I'm corrupt in my heart, I'm corrupt in my actions, and my will is corrupted, right? Okay, bridge. Okay, now the bridge is 19 and 20. I am completely guilty. I can't do anything. I can't say anything, right? Man, I am limited in what I can do. That's the bridge, and then now we get to the rest, and now it's going to be justification explained. Does that, does that kind of make sense? Like we like if we to draw a chart of it, if you draw it on your paper, that's how you can literally draw it. And that puts 19 and 20 giving it, its two purposes there. I want you to know how messed up you are, And wants you to know, hey, you're limited in what you can, how you're going to get out of this situation. And then how does verse 21, I think 21 begins. (laughs) But, but, now typically when that is used, right, what does that typically tell you? Right? Forget everything that just came before it, right? Forget all of that. But, but, And now he's going to make a very important statement. What is he going to say? But now, what has happened? The righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, okay. Something's going on here. God's righteousness is now being made manifest. Now, what does that mean? It's being made manifest. Okay, how does the NIV uh, translate this? Now righteousness uh, from God apart from law has been made to the law and the Okay, all right. So now he's going to turn to a righteousness, right? So now he's going to turn to the subject of righteousness. But it's a righteousness that doesn't come from the law. So, righteousness separate from the law. Well, wait, that, what kind of righteousness? Now, that kind of gives you a clue. If it's a righteousness that doesn't come from the law, what does it give you a clue about? It's not something I can do. Right? Because how, we would say the only way I can be righteous is by keeping law, correct? And if I keep the law, then I'm righteous. This is a law that is made known apart from it. That's okay. That's interesting. Okay, he's kind of borrowing. He's kind of borrowing. In fact, here, man, that door. I'm going to open the door. Okay, all right. I've got to keep moving away from that door. Okay, (laughs) I know. I don't know why he's doing that. All right, here we go. So he's he he almost. if you remember Romans 117 go go ahead and look at it Romans 117 all right yeah I remember this way back now we spent a lot of time on Romans 117 we created a lot of controversy because we did not look at this the way a lot of people do but and now note what happens for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written the just shall live by faith now he's borrowing that from may everybody remember where he took that from? Habakkuk 2.4 someone said it Habakkuk 2.4 right? okay now Habakkuk 2.4 remember uh, the whole pur- purpose of Habakkuk 2.4 was Habakkuk was having some problems was he not Right, because he wanted God to do something, and God came up with a great solution. I'm going to bring in the Chaldeans. And then he was like, oh, wait, you're going to do what? That's horrible. And so ultimately, he was going to have to trust God by faith. He was going to have to live by faith and life. So that, that doesn't really carry the idea of, wait, I'm justified by faith. Right? It doesn't really carry that idea. However, the verse does indicate in the first part that what is, what is revealed by faith? The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Somehow God's righteousness is connected to faith. It still doesn't make a lot of sense, right? It's still a little confusing. I think we read a lot into it because we're told how to interpret that. It's still not clear. But he's returning to the subject. Now go back to Romans 3. Romans chapter 3, here the righteousness of God is showing up, but in this time, it's a righteousness that is without law. Romans 1 says it's, kind of, it's connected to faith. Here it's telling us it's, it's, connect, it's not connected to law. Now, a couple of commentaries. Um, what does it mean that the righteousness of God is manifest? Without the law is manifested, meaning either that this righteousness is without the law, and the deeds of it as performed by sinful men, or that the manifestation of it is without the law. All right? There's two different ways of looking at it. Either, hey, if this, this righteousness is made manifest without the law, meaning you, you can't do anything, or is it simply saying it's manifested apart from the law? The, the way this is manifested is not connected to the law. All right? There's two ways of looking at that there. Uh, either, uh, let's see... Uh, Okay, but, uh, either of nature or of Moses, for the law discovers sin, but not a righteousness which justifies from sin. It shows what righteousness is, but does not direct the sinner where there is, uh, where there is one to be had that will make him righteous in the sight of God. That is made known without the law and only in the gospel. In other, okay, so in other words, what they're arguing, there's two ways of looking at this, and make sure we understand this. I'll read it again. The righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Explanation number one. All right, Bobby can get this righteousness without keeping the law. Option number two, no, this is just simply saying the righteousness is manifested and it's not manifested in the law because the law itself would only show Bobby that he is condemned. It doesn't manifest, it manifests the righteousness of God in a way of showing that God is holy, but it doesn't manifest a way in which Bobby could become righteous. All right? That, okay, it it doesn't really clarify, it kind of clouds it a little bit so we're still not completely understanding about what's going on here other than what that something is being made manifest it is righteousness and whatever however it's being manifested it's not being manifested in connection to law alright that is the best we can figure out but it is being witnessed who was it witnessed by everybody see it being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Okay, it's, it's, you get this weird thing about witness versus manifested, right? It's manifested without the law, but it's witnessed by the law and the prophets. Everybody see that? All right, how, how do we understand that? That seems a little confusing. Would everyone agree? Now, So we have to stop here and we have to, this is where, this is where it becomes very difficult to figure this out. All right. So let's take a step back here, all right, because this verse is really key to everything that comes before it, all right? If I, if I pick up commentaries, right, many commentaries just jump right in and, and this is the way they're going to read it, all right? They're going to read verse 21 this way. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, All right, this is a righteousness that is given to you by Christ. It's imputed to your account because you're justified by faith. They're reading that there. Would you agree? Because the text itself leaves me a little bit confused. Yes? It's just saying God's righteousness is manifested. But manifested in what way? Is it just shown? Well, they turn around and tell me that it's witnessed by the law and the prophets. Well, if it was witnessed by the law and the prophets, was it not being shown? So what's the difference between being witnessed and being manifested? Does everybody see that difficulty in language? Would everyone see that there there seems a weird way of stating it? Yes? Is that a yes or a no? Does everybody see the the, the question I'm trying to figure out here? I'm getting some looks like maybe you're not with me. It says it's manifested without the law. Everybody see that? But it says it's witnessed by the law. That means there's got to be a difference between being manifested and being witnessed. Would everyone agree with that? Okay. That is what we're trying to figure out. In fact, um, do I have here... I may have. No, I don't. I thought I brought it. I was going to show you how a commentary will pick this up. Commentaries don't try to answer this question... They just jump right in and, um, yeah, I may mean I left it in the car. Um, they, uh, they just jump in and they just basically tell you this is what it means. And you're like, well, I'm still a little bit confused. I'm still a little bit confused. So let's do this with verse 21. Okay, let's do this. Can we agree that the law and the prophets, they declared, I mean, obviously the law declares the, the law, and the prophets testified of the law, can we agree that what the law and what the prophets proclaimed, it, it witnessed God's right, righteousness because it pointed to the fact that God is righteous based off his law and based off what they preached. Can we say that God's righteousness was at least witnessed to? Yes? But there was a limit to it. Yes? Because what did the law not tell you? It didn't really tell you how you could obtain righteousness. Now, you would think that it would because you would like, well, if I keep it, but what did you find out? You can't. And that was the point of the previous section. So, it would only witness to the fact that there's a righteousness, but it wouldn't tell you how to obtain it, wouldn't tell you how to get it, wouldn't tell you what you. It would just basically do what? The preaching of the prophets and the law would simply witness to the fact that God is righteous, leading you to what conclusion? That you're guilty. That's the point of the previous section. Agreed? So now the manifesting has to be something different than this witness. The witness would simply say, hey, God is holy, God is righteous, here is all of his laws, and you are condemned. The manifestation of it has to be something different, and it's done apart from the law. Without the law, everybody see that? Okay, now how how this is something different. Something is happening here that is different. Agreed? Everybody see the difference there? The law and the prophets did they not? Does it not declare that God is righteous? Everybody should say yes, right? But what what is the result of its declaration? Leave you guilty. guilty. So the manifestation comes apart and it's separate from the law. Well, what? What could that be? Now, th- this is where we now started getting a- a- an indication. Now, again, I could I could do it like most Protestant preachers right now, and I could just basically, um, I could just basically load our theology into it. And then I can make this sermon sound a whole lot better, but I'm not giving you the struggle with the text. I'm trying to get you into the struggle with the text. If you read this, I, I don't know how you've ever read it, but when you read this, you should be all confused. You would be like, wait, what is going on here? Okay, wait. I get the, I get the part that I'm, I'm, gui- I'm, I understand the first part, right? I'm guilty. This seems to be the answer, and the answer is a little bit perplexing, but what I know is that somehow the righteousness of God is manifested and law is not involved. I don't really understand what that means but I do know that somehow this righteousness that is being manifested has is not being it's not in connection with the law. All right? Everybody got that? All right? That's important. All right? Next verse. All right? Even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe for there is no difference now we're getting somewhere now we're getting somewhere okay how does the niv translate verse uh 22 this righteousness from god comes through faith in jesus christ to all who believe okay now this This is now taking... Now, what what righteousness do you think they're referring to in verse 22? Now, the King James says, even the righteousness. The NIV states it what way in verse 22? This righteousness. A specific righteousness. Right? Which righteousness is verse 22 referring to? The one in verse 21, which is manifested... Without the law. It's not referring to the righteousness that was witnessed by the law and the prophets, right? Okay? It's now talking about the righteousness that was manifested without the law. Right? God's righteousness may be witnessed to, but this is a righteousness that is manifested. And this righteousness that is manifested, in verse 22, what do we learn about this righteousness that is manifested? It is by faith in whom? christ everybody see that even the righteousness of god which is by faith of jesus christ unto all and upon all them that believe for there is no difference the righteousness that is manifested we somehow get this righteousness by placing our faith in christ then it becomes our righteousness now, please note, remember how I said this is justification explained? This now gets into the key element of our understanding of justification. Because we believe that we are justified on, what, on the basis of what? Okay. Or what's another way of saying it? We are justified on the basis of a, a righteousness that is not our own. That is the key element here. And with, that what we're seeing in, that, in this, ju, this ex, explanation of justification is that there is a righteousness that's not connected to law that comes to us by faith. So by faith, I obtain a righteousness that is separate from law-keeping and that I obtain it by faith. It doesn't really describe, well, it, well, verse 21 gives us where this righteousness comes from. It's manifested, but whose righteousness does it possibly appear to be? The righteousness of God. Everybody see that? Now this is, this is a profound statement. How righteous is God? And it's manifested without law. And then I get it by faith? Now, that's a staggering point. Right? Now, this is good news in light of what we've just seen. How guilty am I? So I can't be justified by the deeds of law. I can't do it. Now, again, a Catholic may come along and say, well, that's the deeds of the Old Testament law. Well, are you going to give me some other law that I have to keep? Because when, if I can get this righteousness... Apart from law, then what kind of, then what right, what could I do to to save myself? If I get the righteousness of God, should that not be enough? Yes, right Remember this is this is why we spent so much time in the Romans 2 six argument. Where people say, "Hey, you're going to be justi- you are going to be—you're justified by grace, uh, but your works are going to prove whether you're saved. If you don't have enough works, you're not saved. So you got to work." Well, wait a minute. No, 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 that doesn't work. Because if I'm justified by faith, then what work do I need? You say, "Well, you're going to have to have some work." Well, n- well, wait a minute. No, if I get this right, if I get this righteousness, that's all the have w- i have got all the work I need because I've got what work. I got a perfect righteousness. Now, I'm not saying this is excuses sin. I'm just saying there's a, a, a very important way to look at this. So this is starting to establish the idea. He's starting to explain it. So we could state it this way, right? I'll, I'll we'll have to end right here. I, I know I kind of I kind of tried to work you through. I didn't want to just come here. I, I've got 500 commentaries that basically say, "Hey, justification explained." Point number one: the righteousness that we get comes apart from the law. Point number two, it comes by faith. Right? I can give you all the commentaries. That's how almost every Protestant pastor preaches it. But that, I hate that because that's just simply like, that's not helping you see the struggle in the text. Does that make sense? So I'm trying to struggle with you through the text for you to feel the, the, the weird wording that's going on here. Right? Because I could just I could have given you three points in an outline and you would remember that point, but you wouldn't remember the struggle and in the, in the, in the passage. So this is what we can do. Starting... In verse 21, Paul begins to explain justification. All right, everybody agree? 19 and 20 is our bridge, correct? And the bridge tells us of what? Our guilt and limits our options for hope. Yes? 21 begins with the word but. And he starts with reminding us that there is a righteousness out there that was made manifest apart from law, and and I, it doesn't just jump to the easy answer because see pr- pastors don't like you to they they almost they 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 cheat you right because you we need to we need to try to live within Paul's words they just want to jump to Paul's conclusion I want you to struggle through the words because all of a sudden if I read this this is just think if you, this is the first time you've ever heard this right just you've never been in a Protestant church. You're living at the time of Paul. And all you know is law and obey law. And if you obey law, God may be happy with you. That's all you know. And then you read this and then you go, okay, man, Paul, I already know I'm guilty. Thank you for reminding me how bad off I am. But then Paul shocked you by telling you, you can't be justified by what you do. So then you're like, well, then what? If I can't do anything, what? What's going to happen to me? And then he just throws out this little hint. The righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law. Now, the Protestant, we come along and we just explain that in our system. I'm trying to avoid that. I want you to feel that. That's confusing, isn't it? Well, what do you mean manifested? Manifested in what way? I don't get it. Right? Right? What righteousness? It's the righteousness of God. But wait, it's witnessed by the law and the prophets. So it's, it's, the, it's the same righteousness of God that's always been present. It was witnessed by them, but now it's manifested without it. Manifested in what way? How is it manifested? Where is it manifested? Right? You see that? You see, And I could just give you an easy answer, but you would be cheated. Then the next verse gives us the first real clue. How is it manifested? By faith. And who gets it? Those who believe. Okay? To all who believe. And what, what, is he, what, what is he stressing in the all? From whom? Jew and Gentile. Everyone believes are the same. How are we the same? How are me and Bobby the same? We're the same in our guilt. And we're the same in the Righteousness. Now, in a practical way, Bobby may be more righteous than me, but guess what? Before God? Sorry, Bobby. Same. That's how it's made manifest. This is now getting us to the doctrine of justification. You see how he's building it? He first establishes... it's. It's just, we run past these verses so fast. Like in the most, in the most average churches, this, this, this whole, we would have covered this whole section in one sermon, but you would, have been, you, would have, you would have thought the verse is easy. It's not easy, is it? When you read that, it's a little confusing. Uh, Diane asked questions about this verse before. It's confusing, is it? Well, what do you mean manifested? Manifested what? Well, how? The next verse gives me a clue. How is it made manifest? How is it made Manifest. By faith in Christ. And who gets it? All who believe. And what kind of righteousness is it? It's a righteousness of God, but what's another key word? Starts with an A. An alien righteousness, an alien righteousness, an alien righteousness. It didn't. Did it come from here? Did it come from the law? Did it come from anything? On, no, it came from somewhere else. It's an alien righteousness that comes upon you by faith, and therefore it's manifested apart from the law. Does that make sense? Yes. All right, so, oh man, there's a lot more we could say there. Okay, I know that's a little difficult trying to struggle through it, but you see what I was trying to do? Okay, I was doing that on purpose, because again, I, I got, I, here's how the, uh, the uh, commentaries would have done it. Uh, justification explained. Point number one, comes apart, uh, we get the righteousness apart from the law. Point number two, we get it by faith. I could give you point number three, and then I could give you a little prayer, and we could all go home. That's how you would typically hear a sermon preached on it. I, threw, I blew out that template because I wanted you to struggle with it. Because when I read that, I'm kind of like, what is it, manifested but witnessed? I don't, I, and I'm not sure we completely understand it, but the next verse gives us a little bit of a clue. So you should be grateful that God's righteousness was manifested apart from the law, and you, you partake in it somehow. It's given to you by faith. Because if you do not have that righteousness... You're condemned. You're condemned. It's that simple. You can't do it yourself. No matter how good you may think you are, you're not good enough. All right, we'll have to stop right there. And then we'll have to build. We'll have to build on this as we work through it. But that, this, that's an important, important uh, man. There's, I, there's a lot more I could say, but I'll stop right there. All right, Lord God, we come before you this morning, Lord. A It's written in a very difficult way, but I pray that we now have kind of lived within the the confusing part, but we've seen some of what's trying to be said here, and I pray that we would really give this much thought and that we would have a better understanding of justification before we are done with this very important section and that our understanding of justification, I hope, proves to be right. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...